Hello everyone and welcome to the Skylight Books Crowdcast channel. My name is Natalie and I'm a bookseller and podcaster at Skylight Books and I will be your host this evening. Uh, we are so excited to have Danielle Henderson here to talk about her new book, The Ugly Cry, and to be in conversation with Anne Friedman. For those of you who don't know about Skylight Books, we are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. We are open for in-store shopping, and you can always shop 24-7 online at www.skylightbooks.com. And without further ado... I'm going to introduce you to Danielle Henderson, a TV writer whose credits include Maniac, Divorce, and Difficult People, a retired freelance writer and former editor for Rookie. She has been published by the New York Times, The Guardian, Afar Magazine, BuzzFeed, and The Cut. A book based on her popular website, Feminist Ryan Gosling, was released in 2012, and Danielle currently co-hosts the podcast, I Saw What You Did There, with Millie DeCirico about the weird ways we respond to and learn to love movies. She likes to watch old episodes of Doctor Who when she is on deadline. One of her tattoos is based on the movie Rocky, and she will never stop using the Oxford comma. Anne Friedman is a journalist who covers gender, politics, technology, and culture for many publications, including New York Magazine, the Los Angeles Times, and The Gentlewoman. She co-hosts the podcast Call Your Girlfriend and is the co-author of Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Um, Danielle, what a pleasure. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to be here. This is so wonderful. I don't know if everyone can see your shirt that says don't touch me, but I commented earlier that it's like the perfect Zoom event garment. Like I couldn't even if I wanted to, but maybe it has a deeper meaning. Like you can't touch my level of craft. I don't know. Yeah. Like just don't even, don't even approach. It should say don't approach me. More, more accurate. <laughs> but even that's not true. You've hung out with me. You know, I'll talk to anyone at any time. I have approached you and seen you talk to strangers willingly. So, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I want to start by asking you for people who haven't had the pleasure of reading your book, if you could talk a little bit about the years of your life that this memoir covers and uh, maybe set the scene for us a little bit. Uh, what, absolutely, 100%. Um, I wrote this book, it really just covers ages zero to 18. I kind of had to go back to the start of my life like a supervillain to make the rest of my life make sense. <laughs> uh, so it's really from birth to age 18. Um, and it's about how I grew up with my single mom in upstate New York uh, with my brother. And then when I was seven, uh, she met a man in Macy's and <laughs> he uh, ended up being a horribly abusive, um, you know, drug addict, 
sexually abusive, emotionally abusive guy. Um, and when he got in trouble with the law, she dropped us off at my grandparents' house, my brother and I, and she never came back. We never lived with her again. Uh, so I lived with my grandparents until I was, till I graduated high school. And my grandfather is pretty, he's pretty, he was a pretty typical grandpa, like walks in the park, you know, like to watch John Wayne movies on WPIX. My grandmother is a maniac. Um, she loves horror movies. She gives all of her parenting advice from horror films. Um, she chain smoked and just cursed us out constantly. So she was super funny and weird. And it was just a kind of a funny, weird dynamic to grow up in, growing up with retirees who then had to go back to work to support these tweens that had moved in with them. Oh, I... I really feel like your grandmother is like the heart of this book. And in some ways she almost feels like the main character, even though it's your memoir. Um, and I have, I mean, I, I should say also for people who haven't read this, like this is a woman who refers to you regularly as like numb nuts and fucko, but like is like, is like the truest, dearest, purest heart as well. And um, I, I, I would, I want to ask about that, that, like, did you know that at the outset that she was really going to be kind of like the other main character? I I did only because she is just the main character of my life. You know, like I just I I would not be where I am if my grandmother had not saved my life. She truly saved my life, um, and so I knew that it would be heavily geared towards that story, um, and therefore geared towards her. Um, but I'm glad that I was able to write about her in a way that people are responding so wonderfully to who she who she is. And she's 88, and she's still exactly the same person. Um, but yeah, I did know that because she's just been the anchor of my life. Mm -hmm. And maybe we can talk about that. I mean, I guess I asked you this question about like what you knew at the outset about this, um, about the story you wanted to tell. And I wonder how much was sort of pre-plotted where you were like, okay, these are the major events we're gonna cover. And how much did you write your way to like understanding what, what had been pivotal for you? I, I did a, a, an intense outline with my editor uh, at the start. So it was hugely helpful to me to have a map. I like to write from, even when I'm, I'm writing on my own, I always write my notes out longhand um, before I dig in and start typing. So there were definitely a few stories that I knew, well, these kind of have to be in the book because it's part of who I am. Um, they're, they're very defining, defining stories. But I did write my way to the ending I didn't know that's how I was going to end the book until, until I got there. Um, and I also, there were definitely a couple of stories in there that I thought, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily have thought they would have made great stories, but in writing them, I was able to find such grace with my mom mm -hmm. and it felt important to include them. Uh, Cause that's something that, that was definitely unexpected for me about this book um, is that how, how I would write about my mom. Mm -hmm. And maybe you could talk a bit more about that. Like, what did you think it was going to be? And then what what did that, what did you actually end up wanting to write? I thought it was going to be just a scathing review of her parenting skills and how, how awful she was and she abandoned us and she was terrible. But it was really, once I started thinking about our lives before this man came on the scene, it was very difficult for me to do that because I had kind of an idyllic childhood. Like, yes, we were 
a single parent home. And yes, we were one of the only black families in town. And yes, we were on welfare, but I got to play outside and, you know, run around and have friends and do the things that everyone else in my neighborhood was doing in spite of that stuff. Um, so I kind of, it was hard for me to just focus on the bad once I realized there was so much good, there was so much goodness before. And it really also draws a pretty stark, there's a pretty stark line of delineation between how could she and why did she once I explained mm. kind of how, how good she was before. Hmm. Yeah. I, and, and those are questions that um, I'm, I don't know. I, I, I find myself wondering about like, how much does it matter? The how could she or why did she? Like, how much does that distinction matter to you? Not very, it doesn't matter too much. Now, as an adult, on the other side of it, I can say that. Um, at the time, I didn't understand for a minute why why she would leave me. And I, I internalized a lot of that pain and thought it was because of who I was or kind of who I was as a kid or was I a bad kid. Um, but it doesn't, I think it only matters in that it helped me really figure out who I wanted to be in relation to who she was. So I knew that I never wanted to be a person from a very young age. I never wanted to be a person who built her life around a romantic relationship or, you know, abandoned things in her life because of, of men. Um, so that was, that was pretty crucial lesson to learn pretty early on. But I think the, the why did she leave or how could she leave becomes less and less important to the story. Um, and again, that was a surprise in writing it that what ended up taking over was just me finding these moments and recognizing all the different ways that I was loved. Hmm. Yeah, the, one of my favorite scenes in the book is when you travel to California with your grandmother and visit family out there because there's this really beautiful moment where you kind of get to see her through the eyes of these other family members and then also you get to feel loved in this totally different way by your family there. And um, I, I don't know, I'm wondering about that perspective shift. And is that something that like you could really recognize in real time or was it just in retrospect when you were like, huh? <laughs> I did recognize it in real time, which is why I think it stuck with me. That visit stuck with me so much uh, because I saw my grandmother who was this, you know, she's like a tugboat of, of emotion <laughs> and she just plows through her life. Like, you know, what she says goes. And I got to see her be really gentle. And I think that um, something that happens when we go to, to California when I was 15 is that I realized that my great grandmother had Alzheimer's. She was in the middle of, you know, kind of a, a, her dementia. And so I heard my grandma cry with her sister and I got to hear her kind of be very gentle in a way that I didn't know she was capable of being. And it really helped me to see her humanity. Um, and it didn't erase all the other stuff, but it did just kind of crack open a different a different perspective. Hmm. I want to ask about the title because there's a part of me that was expecting, like, I know you would never do this, like a bad movie trailer, but like expecting the moment when you were like, and there it was, the ugly cry, or like, you know, like something like that. And I, I have kind of like my reader's opinion of like the defining scene I think about when I think about the ugly cry. But I want to put that question to you and like, whether there is a moment in the book where that is, it's like the ugly cry moment. Yeah, I th for me, it's when I, when I, when I told my grandmother about my sexual abuse and that I'd been feeling suicidal. 
Um, I don't think I've ever had such a an outpouring of emotion before or since. Um, it was really scary to do, but it was really, um, it was kind of remarkable how how she was able to kind of hold me in that moment. And so that that for me is probably the biggest ugly cry moment. But the reason I call it the ugly cry is that um, that is what my grandmother used to say all the time when we cried as kids. Like she would just start laughing and say, oh, you look so ugly when you cry. And I used to think it's because she just wanted us to cheer up and laugh with her. And, you know, so, and it would, it would work. Like we kind of like cheer up a little bit. But then I got older and I realized, no, I think she's just a maniac. She likes telling kids they look ugly when they cry. <laughs> like it just makes me laugh. <laughs> And there's a scene in the book, I think it's in the book, like, I haven't read the book in total in a long time, but um, there's a chapter where she's teaching me how to fight. And that's what she says when she, after she punches me in the forehead and I fall back um, and start crying. And she's like, you look ugly when you cry. Um, so it's very subtle, but that's why I called it that. And it, was, it has always had that title since before I even started writing the book. I just thought if I ever write about my life, I have to call it <laughs> That's actually a good question. Did you, I mean, you just said, if I ever read about my life, um, is it something like how, why did you want to write a memoir? And when did that desire present itself? Only very, very recently, um, within the last, you know, seven years or so, um, I kind of thought I have enough, like a very low grade, low level self-esteem <laughs> that I always thought, well, my story isn't that important. And like other people have experienced worse. Um, so it took me a lot to like, steal myself up for the notion of even putting it out in the world as if it mattered. Um, but I think what really helped me was just kind of talking to friends and realizing that there's something about the way that I was raised that has heavily influenced who I currently am. And so in order to answer questions for people like, you know, why did you move to Alaska for four years? Or how did you get into TV writing? Or, you know, my whole life has just been a series of decisions that I made to get to make sure that I never became what I saw my mom being. Um, so it made sense to me at a certain point that like, just, just to synthesize it for myself, um, to synthesize my own story, because I was evolving and reaching a different level in my own life and career. And I wanted to kind of acknowledge that, that I wasn't that person anymore, but it's still very much within me. <laughs> and you know, that, that, you know, those feelings and those emotions and those experiences are still within me. Um, so it's kind of nice to have something that I can now just hand people and say like, well, here's how it started. <laughs> you know, what's the experience? Just read my book. <laughs> you kind of say yes to everything, everything else. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I loved, um, you know, there were so many little details that I, I was like, oh, this is why we get along, you know, like where um, I, this is an experience that I had when people read like, um, my book where they were like, oh, I've known you forever. And like this thing, this makes so much sense now why we're friends. And for me in your book, it was this moment where you make a skirt out of neckties from the thrift store to wear to high school. And I, you know, to like be super unique and cool, which is something I also did to be super unique and cool. And I was like, were we all just doing this like separately? <laughs> is that what the nineties was? In the cosmos that was just like linking us together like a bad marvel movie <laughs> yes i had that feeling when i read this i was like you know because it's it's really easy to see that now with the internet and at the time you know i couldn't see the masses of other sassy reading teens in their tie skirts you know what i mean 100 percent. that's why i was so grateful for any time i got to spend in the city because mm. even if i wasn't seeing 
people who did something exactly like me, I got to see difference and I got to see creativity on display. And that was a huge deal for me. Cause you, you're right. Like you never, you could see it sometimes on TV and, you know, occasionally they would dip into it in a storyline on like Beverly Hills 90210, but you never saw it in real life. And I didn't have that, that expression at all. Yeah. I mean, so much of the back half of the book where we get into your preteen and teen years is about you really looking for like, what is my place in the world beyond this like really small, predominantly white town. And, um, I had a lot of like, I just wanted to kind of like hug you and be like, you did it. <laughs> you know, I wanted to go back in time. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if you kind of like found some new compassion for yourself or like how your relationship with yourself changed through the writing process. I really did. And again, unexpected because I, I, I don't think of writing, I don't think of writing as healing something in me until I'm really done with the process. So even I journal every day and it's mostly just to kind of empty my head out so I can go to sleep. Um, but then the next day or two days later, I'll be like, wait a minute, I actually feel different now that I've explained yeah. it to myself. Um, so I did, it, it really, it impacted me in a pretty intense way to write this book and to finish it and to look at it and to read it back. Um, and cause I really, there are just things about myself that became very clear in the writing that I never would have thought were that weren't very clear in my living ex my lived experience. Um, so I learned how to have a lot more grace with myself as well, um, and to not necessarily to not push myself aside. You know, I think that's how this book came to be: is that I finally stopped pushing myself aside and said, you know what, I I do matter, <laughs> and my story does matter, um, and it might matter to just me, and that's okay. Um, but I think that there's there's a fierceness in myself that I kind of hadn't really been willing to acknowledge until I finished writing this book. And I think that, mm. um, you know, it takes a lot of courage to kind of do some of the things I've I've done and, and to go through some of the things I've survived. So I've been able to finally see that. Today's episode of Skylit is brought to you by Rare Bird Lit. Critics have called it gripping and a must read. Unstoppable by Joshua M. Green is the unbelievable true story of Ziggy B. Wiltzig's astonishing journey from Auschwitz survivor and penniless immigrant to Wall Street legend. Out now in hardcover from Insight Editions. Now, back to the episode. Um, I thought it was really interesting that there are just a couple of moments in the book where you give us the like the little like epilogue text on the screen of like, and here's what happened about that. And, you know, I can name offhand a couple, like when you talk about um, your depression and like how your relationship with that has evolved and um, about your grandmother's dementia. And I think there's maybe one or two others, but it's really select instances where you, where you say like kind of flash forward, this is how it all turned out. And I'm wondering, you know, just structurally, narratively, why you made the choices you did to like tell us how things shook out in certain areas, but not in others. I think that my, my story is kind of harrowing. And I think that um, I didn't want to leave readers feeling like this was just a, a story of pure trauma. Mm -hmm. um, and it was important to me to add these, you know, the, and you're right, there's only a couple different places, but the depression especially, it was important for me to explain to myself that this is what happened, that I wouldn't understand 
everything that I'd been going through until like a year ago, um, even though I've been in therapy for 20 years. And so it was just kind of an important way for me to, to put a pin in something for myself as well as the reader. I didn't want to, I mean, I think the book is, is definitely a good mix of the, the trauma with the humor, um, if you can do such a thing, but, <laughs> but I, I definitely didn't want, I wanted to convey something to the readers that would kind of bring them closer to who I am now and bring them a little bit of relief, but also bring them some, some solace that this kid survives. Hmm. And thrives. I mean, uh, I, I have to say that, I mean, I definitely got as much or more humor um, from this book than I did trauma. And, you know, you write these really wonderful scenes that are almost sitcom-y, like these kind of like domestic <laughs> uh, moments with, uh, with your family. And, um, and it made me wonder about your TV writing experience and how, you know, the way things need to be structured for the camera might have affected how you wanted to write some of these scenes in the book. Yeah, you know what's really wild is that I, I think in dialogue when mm. I'm writing. So it was actually, I think this book impacted more of the TV writing than the other way around because mm. I learned how to do TV writing. I taught myself how to write scripts by reading scripts and I never went to school for it or anything. Um, so because I kind of thought in dialogue, it was easier for me to kind of make that shift into, into television writing. Mm. Um, but I do think the structure of the scenes is very much impacted by, you know, my work as a, as a screenwriter. And it's, mm -hmm. um, it's something that feels natural. It feels pretty natural to me, but I'm sure it's, it's again, like that, like you just said, it's, it's, it's mutually influential, <laughs> these two things I'm experiencing. So when I, when I was writing this book, I had just started my TV writing career. Um, and, I think it took me what, like four years to write write this book. And so I was learning how to write TV um, as I was writing this book. And I think I got better at both as it went on. <laughs> that's like a graduate, that's like a personal graduate education, like just happening simultaneously. <laughs> it really was. Yeah. It really um, was, yeah. I, the book's dedicated to your brother, and I wanted to ask about that because he's obviously like he's there throughout it. But um, I, after reading it, I went back and, and checked that it wasn't dedicated to your grandmother because of what I said earlier about her being so the, like in some ways the heart of it. And I'd love to hear about that choice. I dedicated Feminist Ryan Gosling to my grandma, mm -hmm. and um, I I'm so proud of the relationship my brother and I have been able to build. And we are so much closer as adults than we ever were as kids. And when he he read the book, um, I didn't let anyone read it early on. I finished it, waited until it kind of was digitized. And then I sent it to him. And um, I sent it to him and my best friend, um, who are both in the book. <laughs> my best friend said, I'm sorry, I was such a bitch when I was in high school. <laughs> I said, you weren't, you were tough. And I needed it. Um, <laughs> And my brother said, I'm so sorry. He said, I read this and it just made me feel sorry that I wasn't there for you as mm. a teenager. And I just kind of had to point out to him that we were both kids and we were just dealing with it in our, in our own way. Um, mm. And that we both kind of took quite divergent paths to get through it. Um, but that I understood that. Like I understood that we were both just getting through it in our own way. So I think that I dedicated it to him because he... 
he's kind of that invisible hand that also guided my life. Um, he has always been incredibly sweet and incredibly funny and mm. really proud of me and just really supportive. And I just wanted to to kind of recognize that in this book that even though he doesn't he doesn't take up a ton of space in the book because we really weren't close when I was mm. a teenager. Um, we had very different lives that he was still a very he had a profound impact on me. Yeah. Um, I don't want to out you, but I happen to know that despite all of the stuff in this book about how badly you wanted out of this part of the world, that you are back there now. And um, I, what was that decision like? And how does it feel to be back in this place that you've been revisiting in your writing now so intensely? It's it's fairly wild. Um, so I just moved back to Warwick, New York three weeks ago. And I bought a house. I bought like, actually, it's a tiny farm, if I'm being honest. It's got like a barn and a silo and acreage. And there's like a fairy tale forest out there every day. There's deer doing calisthenics. It's wild. Uh, <laughs> the gophers are having tea, or the groundhogs are having tea parties. Um, it is wild to be back here. And I just went out, a couple of friends of mine from high school moved back here within the last few years and, you know, bought homes. And um, I was with my friend Tim the other day and just saying, because he asked how it was to be back. And I said, you know, it's not bad at all. It's actually quite lovely because I didn't come back to high school. I came back as a 44 year old woman who made a choice to be here and that feels different. Um, and I made that decision because of my grandmother. She, she does have dementia and she's very quickly getting to a place where she can't live on her own. Um, she refuses to go in a home. She's actually told us, she's like, if you try to put me in a home, I'm going to wheel myself into traffic. And I was like, okay, let's not be so dramatic. <laughs> so I bought her. So I bought her a house. Um, and she's going to live with me. Uh, so she, you know, she's going to have the, the run of the bottom floor and we'll see how that goes. Um, I'm sure it'll be just as, as fun as it is frustrating. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, when I needed her, early in my life she was there and it's the least I can do to be here for her at the end of at the end of her life and I feel mm. I feel like I'm lucky I've had my grandmother in my life since I was you know for 44 years that's a very strange thing nowadays so I feel really lucky that I'm in a position to do this for her but that I also um I'm really close with her and she's just one of my favorite people and one of my closest friends so I feel really lucky to be able to do this for her. However, having said that, I have been here for three weeks without a car because my car is being shipped from LA. It is a whole different thing to be here without a way to escape because that was kind of the crux of the plan was like, well, I can go to the city and see people and get out if I need to. There's a, a bird died in my driveway and I can't even pick it up because I can't go buy a shovel. So like <laughs> that stuff. It's, I'm just watching it just like return to the earth because I can't go get a shovel. You've like gone full country. You're really there. <laughs> it's wild. I sit on the porch at night and there are fireflies and it's lovely. But the other night I had a bear out there. So it's just like, uh, okay, this is where I am now. It's fine. It's fine. I did all of this for her. Um, and she's she's worth it. <laughs> she's worth it. Which is so funny because there's a whole part of this book about how meaningful it was for you to get a car as a teenager and how no one else in your household drove. And like, I'm just like, I, I'm not trying to find parallels everywhere. I'm just telling you that I, I recently read a story in which the main character struggles to like get a car and get out of that place. So 
Exactly. And here I am again. Here you are. I put myself right back in that place, but it's the irony of it is not lost on me at all. Yeah. Um, I I want to ask one more question, but I want to before I do that invite everyone to who is watching this to ask your questions. Um, hit that button or leave it in comments. Right. Um, yeah, I can do this. It's happening down there. Uh, and um, Danielle can answer all of your brilliant questions. But uh, my last question has to do with um, just, you know, the overall reception of the book. I mean, I think memoir is something where, um, I mean, of course, all books like have a ripple effect. But in particular, when you are putting in words some stuff that like maybe your family kind of knows ambiently or maybe your friends know a little bit about um making that really concrete has consequences usually and um i'm just wondering how these last few weeks have been for you as the book is a thing in the world yeah it's what's really bizarre possibly is that i never hesitated to write this book or felt like i had to hold anything back because mm -hmm. i've talked to my family about this for 30 years and so mm -hmm. they know all these stories and they know how I feel um, my mom included and so I didn't feel like I needed to kind of alter my approach to writing my own life and my own truth um, and thankfully that's kind of also been the way it's been received is that um, my mom and I haven't spoken we were kind of very tentatively starting to communicate um, I did give her a copy of the book I'm not sure if she's read it um, but there's nothing in there that that isn't true. <laughs> um, so if she wants to talk about it, I'm happy to. Uh, that's the only ripple that I can really see as being more of a, a tidal wave of of anger. Um, mm -hmm. But I've also had like really lovely things happening as as a side effect of writing this book. So if some, you know, my friend Amy, who I mentioned in the book, and you know, we went we met in fourth grade and have been friends ever since. Um, she wrote me like a handwritten letter. And you know we've been reconnecting in that way. Um, it's been great. It's been really lovely. Like there's not a single, there's not a single person in my life that um, has had anything terrible to say about how they're represented or how I represented the family or how I represented myself. And I think that's the one, the one thing that's very freeing about memoir. Um, when you come from the place that I've come from, like if you don't want to be portrayed as a terrible parent, don't be a terrible parent. <laughs> you don't want to be portrayed as an asshole. Don't be an asshole. Um, <laughs> easy, right? simple, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, don't maybe don't marry someone who's like heavily into drugs and beats your kids up. I don't know what to tell you, lady. Um, so yeah, I, I basically I'm being flippant here, unfortunately, but I just feel like it's it's something that I always have talked about with people. Like once the floodgates opened my family knew everything. I think that there are um, details that surprise people. Mm. Uh, my great aunt was kind of like, oh, I didn't know it was that bad. Um, mm. So we talked about that because she's what, 90 now? Um, and she didn't know it was that bad. So we talked talk more about it, um, but it's brought me closer to people in that way, which has been great. And then there's also, there's also just that kind of cool thing of like, you know, it's really hard to sit your friends down and be like, here's the story of my life. Here's eight hours. Here's everything that happened. So the people that I love and the friends that I have are, are kind of discovering things about, about me in a very deep way, which I think just kind of brings us, brings us all closer together. So fingers crossed. Yeah. 
<laughs> but it's been no different. there's a real power to the chronology aspect too you know because it's like with family or with friends we learn this stuff in little snippets and like you know it's it's really different than getting this kind of complete timeline picture of like what your childhood meant for for like the woman you are today it's like yeah Absolutely. it's powerful and now now the only thing i'll settle for is if everyone i know is right writes a memoir that's it Oh my God. Can you imagine? Um, <laughs> You're already ahead of the curve. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, unfortunately. Right. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if you have adaptation plans for the book. Like if, you know, back to that question about TV writing informing this yeah. process. Strangely, this book was optioned for a TV show um, at proposed at the proposal stage. And like just when I was starting TV writing and it sold to Annapurna and Paul Feig was attached to direct and it was like going to be this TV show, but I kind of, it didn't work out. And thankfully, you know, I'm really glad for the process, but it didn't work out because um, they thought it was going to be a comedy. <laughs> and I was like, oh, but I have to write the book first so you can see that it absolutely will not be just a comedy. Um, so now uh, as things stand, I'm looking to develop it as a film. Like I've started the process of that. I think that um, it is an it's an encapsulation of a life. It's already a full story. I don't want to drag that out into seven seasons. Um, so I think I'd rather just if I'm gonna if I'm going to adapt it at all, I'd rather do it as a as a film. So that's kind of where I'm starting right now. Right. I, I want to let Natalie jump in. I don't, yeah, there we go. <laughs> there I am trying to jump in. <laughs> thank you both so much for this conversation. It has been so wonderful. And thank you everyone for sending in your questions. I'm gonna go ahead and get started with them and please continue to send them to us. Um, to start, Danielle, as someone who grew up in an all white town and never seen anyone who looked like you, how did you reconcile that as an adult and how did it change your view, how you view yourself as a black woman? That's a great question. Thank you. Um, it's 100% impacted how I saw myself as a black woman. It took me a really long time to get in touch with my blackness. It was present in my home, of course, but it felt overbearing. You know, when my grandparents would put on jazz records or they would, you know, talk about how, you know, growing up in Harlem and I always loved those stories, but I felt so far removed from it. Um, and I think that's where, it's where the crux of my self-esteem issue started, is not seeing myself represented anywhere in my life. Again, we're talking 80s and early 90s, so barely even in magazines, <laughs> you know, like barely even on TV. Um, it just, there just wasn't a culture for it. So I grew up feeling pretty hideous, um, and it took a very long time for me to recognize my, not only just, not just hideous, but I also felt like you know, I didn't have a stake in black pop culture. And even though I loved, you know, certain, like I loved certain musicians and I loved a wide array of pop cultural things, I felt like I was kind of posturing if I dug into the, my black side a little bit more. Um, it took a long time to get out of that. It really didn't start to come to the surface until I was in my twenties, my early twenties. Um, so it impacted me pretty negatively um, to grow up in a predominantly white town. And I'm glad that I got there, but I definitely, it took me such a long time to feel like I could even claim my blackness. And um, it's sad, it's sad to me that it took that long, but I'm glad that I, I got here. 
Thank you. Uh, next we have, how did you manage getting to the point where you are willing to communicate with your mother? And also, what was the catalyst for the opening of dialogue with her? Another good question. Thank you. Um, my aunt died. My aunt Renee, who I mentioned in the book, died of stage four breast cancer last March. And in true Henderson fashion, her literal dying wish was, I know you don't need a mother, but I wish you would try to talk to your mom again. And I was like, thanks, asshole. Great. You're on your way out. <laughs> I'm just thanks. Um, and again, I say that jokingly, but I was with her. I was with her until the end. And I was there when, you know, um, right before she passed. And so I asked her um, while I still could, did she want to see anyone from our family? And you know, she was living in Sacramento. Um, and this is when I was in LA. So I would drive up to see her, fly up to see her constantly. And she said, yeah, you know, I kind of want to see your brother and I wouldn't mind seeing your mom. And she and my mom had a very fraught relationship because of, the, well, because of what my mom did to us. My aunt has always loved us very fiercely. And so it impacted their relationship pretty terribly, um, but she wanted to see them. So I, I, I had to call my mom <laughs> and say, um, you know, Aunt Renee is dying and she wants to see you and I'll buy you a plane ticket. And if you wanna come out, you can come out. And she did. And so we started talking on the heels of that and kind of just the grief that we were feeling as a family. Um, and now we're, again, we're at a point where I really, it's hard for me to wanna to push forward with her, um, but I've decided to give her that chance, not because I expect anything from it, but because it's just kind of easier than fighting it sometimes and you know she's there's nothing to fight anymore and I am who I am and she's definitely who she is um who just so happens to be a total narcissist um but I recognize that fully now so I think that the way that we're in each the way that we're in each other's lives or might be in each other's lives um is kind of dependent on her also recognizing and seeing me um, but yeah, I think it's it's just because of my my aunt and her her goddamn dying wish. <laughs> and we have one more question, which I think would be a great one to end on, which is that is there anything that you wish you had written or that you maybe did write that didn't make it into the book? Yes, thank you. Another good question. Um, I actually, so I misread my contract when I first got it, and I thought that my book had to be 150,000 words. So I actually wrote like 70,000 words, and I wasn't really feeling it, so I just deleted them. And my editor was like, first of all, Game of Thrones isn't even 150,000 words. <laughs> Second of all, what do you mean you deleted that? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'll write more. And she's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so I think that, there's nothing I really feel like I missed. Like everything in the book is is targeted to be in the book for a reason. But I do think that um, I kind of wish that I dug, that I was able to write a little bit more about my friendships here in high school. And I think what's really strange and the reason I didn't do it is because I forgot a lot of that stuff. Um, you know, when you're in the middle of, you know, depression does affect your memory. And I forgot a lot of the specifics of what it was like to, you know, hop in a car with a friend and go for a drive. And so I didn't want to write it in a half-assed way. Um, so I just didn't write it at all. Um, 
and that's kind of, again, like one of the, the pitfalls of memoir is you have to know, remember what you're talking about. <laughs> so there were some, that's the way the depression kind of affected my memory. Um, that I, I don't remember the details of, of, of high school very clearly. Um, and I think it was because I was just in survival mode for the most part. Um, but also it was, wasn't that interesting to me. I was dying to get out. So I didn't really focus or spend a lot of time on, on stuff here. Um, and I wish that I had. I wish that I had hadn't been so eager to go that I didn't value <laughs> the goodness that I had here while I had it. Mm. I have a totally frivolous last question, which is: It looks like you're coming to us live from like inside a Fabergé egg. Like I don't know what this is, but like like not related to your to your book at all. But I guess I have to ask before we all hang up. Like, what is this? This is a chair, and it kind of it goes above my head. <laughs> it is like a throne almost. But I'm sitting here because I'm going to be unpacking probably for the rest of the summer. So my house is in such chaos that like this is the only place I can sit and look even remotely normal. <laughs> I, don't, I don't look normal at all. <laughs> it looks incredible, actually. Like I, I need to get one for all future virtual events. But like, sorry, that's not on topic. But I was like, before we go, this is, topic. Like, this is who I am now. I'm a lady who has a throne. <laughs> Great. A low key throne, <laughs> but it is kind of nice for like, and it's good for acoustics for podcasting too. Mm. <laughs> well, thank you so much to Danielle and Anne for being here for this event. Make sure that you click the button at the bottom of your screen to order your own copy of The Ugly Cry from Skylight Books. And everyone who asked a question, thank you for tuning in. Everybody who was watching from all over, we had people from all over the U.S. watching with us today. Thank you so much. And this uh, recording will be available for replay in just a few minutes. Awesome. Thank you, everyone, so much. Support indie bookstores. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Have a good night. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.